this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, generally speaking, we try to assess if a man can ejaculate, obviously on their own, but there is a difference between masturbation and like a penetrative sex experience that, again, it's very difficult sometimes to assess if it is a physical stimulation issue or if it is psychological. There are like historical theories about men wanting to withhold from their partners and whatnot. I think those have limited applications, certainly based on how we are structured in our relationships in 2023. But it's important to be aware that there definitely are other ways to think about this from a psychological perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. The Jose Silva is your host this week, and we have an interesting guest today. We have Mark Goldberg. Mark is a certified sex therapist. He has advanced training in cognitive behavior therapy from the Beck Institute. He is also certified emotionally focused couples therapist. He is the host of the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. So welcome to Backtable, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. So in the past, we have had previous episodes that we focused mainly on the mechanical aspect or things that we can do, surgical or pills to treat ED. But definitely the psychogenic part of the ED is sometimes difficult to talk or really personally myself, most of the time I don't have time for that, maybe five, 10 minutes and then, hey, you need to talk to somebody else. And I can see even, I mean, younger guys, Although it doesn't matter the age, but mainly younger guys, but really that they need somebody to talk to. Sometimes you can see that either is either stress, is a lot of emotional aspect, or sometimes they start thinking about they have one episode and then it's going to happen again. So that's what we're going to talk about. That other part of the erectile dysfunction tree or logistic that we go with the patient. So let's talk about you, Mark. Tell us, I mean, what does a sexual therapist do? Uh, that's a great question. So sex therapist at the base is a mental health therapist. Certainly here in the United States, mental health therapist is licensed. It means they've completed at least a master's level of education in psychology, professional counseling, marriage and family therapy, social work, etc. And they have completed requisite licensing requirements in their state. That's the starting point for any sex therapist is that they are a therapist who is trained to treat mental health conditions. Sex therapists have additional training. If they're certified, they've been through a multi-year certification process where they have gained you know, expertise in sexual issues and the mind's role in those sexual issues. Somebody like myself, I particularly focus on sexual dysfunction. So a lot of my work is focused on both the relational aspects and also the individual psychological aspects that contribute to sexual dysfunction. And in particular, I focus on ED and the ejaculatory disorders. So do, the, do you have an office? I, I, I went to your website. I know you do virtuals also. So talk us a little about your practice right now. So my practice is made up of myself and there's a couple other clinicians here with me. I do both in-person and telehealth. I'd say that currently I'm seeing probably about 70% of my patients are telehealth and about 30% are coming in person, primarily couples, but also some individuals do come in person. And in terms of that patient that comes with ED, I mean, do you know beforehand that the patient is going for ED or they just show up and then you start talking about, hey, what was the problem? How does that work? 
That's a great question. For the most part, we do know in advance that somebody is coming to talk about ED. It does come up a lot. In other words, the way I got into this work in the first place was that I was working with couples and the conversation around sexual dysfunction would start to come up in the office. So it really doesn't always present immediately. Sometimes people come in to talk about anxiety, depression, relationship issues, and then the conversation around erectile dysfunction may emerge a number of sessions in when they're feeling comfortable to talk about it. So I want to talk about the, the couple's aspect at some point later in the episode, but let's start with that individual person. That is usually the ones that we see in the office. What do you talk about in the first visit? So in the first visit, it's usually a lot of um, assessment questions. So the starting point of any therapy process is really establishing rapport. When a patient comes in or when a, I call them clients, when a client comes in and they're coming really under the context of a sexual dysfunction, it's really important that we normalize the challenges that they're going through, that we establish a comfortable environment, that we ask questions, we make sure that we're asking permission about getting involved in different aspects of their life because we're doing this very quickly. It oftentimes unfolds in the first you know, 10 to 15 minutes, we're already talking about sexual function challenges. Generally speaking, in my practice, it's rare that somebody is seeing us without having been to at least a primary care physician, if not a urologist, before coming in. It does happen from time to time, but we do our utmost that we can to ensure that somebody's been medically cleared. So to that end, we generally are just doing a basic check-in on the medical front in terms of what has been done, who they've spoken with, if there was any testing done, any medication. So we're asking about that, but we don't consider ourselves to be the first line for medical assessment or whatnot. We just want to make sure that however they got to us, they've had proper medical checking. So that usually is the first piece of the assessment. We then will go through a much more broad, we call a psychosocial assessment. We want to understand who this person is, what their backdrop is, relationship status, how long the problem's been going on. We also want to assess just where the problem is taking place. How often is it just with a partner? Is it happening when they're on their own? times of day, specific triggers. So we try to be as quick and as thorough as we can to try to see what are the you know, specific conditions where erectile dysfunction seems to be present or seems to be more exacerbated or whatnot. We will also ask questions about general mental health, and we may, if it's relevant, get into topics pertaining to family of origin as well. And I guess, I mean, you encounter this all the time, but how do you approach that patient that is asking why. I mean, uh, I'm healthy, uh, I do exercise, I'm still having this issue. How do you give them expectations or, or what to, but mainly that, that why, how do you answer that? So, you know, first and foremost, we normalize the frustrations around that. A lot of times, the patients that we see, they really are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing. They're healthy, they're not smoking. I get a lot of calls, emails to that effect, and it becomes very puzzling. You know, you're, you're 27 years old in very good health, and you're having erection issues. So what I explain to the people that I work with is as follows. I think some of the thinking that erectile dysfunction is somehow a psychological process or a medical process is a little bit misleading because I think erections in general are both a psychological and a physical process when everything is working. So for most men, once they are above a certain age, once they're out of their teenage years and their hormone levels have come into some kind of balance, they're generally not getting erections without some stimulation. In other words, the mind has to be in a place where it is receptive, where the context makes sense to be getting an erection in the first place. 
we kind of just normalize the psychology or the role of the mind as part of a healthy erection process. That doesn't mean that there aren't physiological realities that may cause a man to get an erection even when he's not necessarily thinking about anything or particularly stimulated. But as men age, that certainly becomes you know much more of how the erection process works. So we try to again normalize that you know the mind is involved and active. And then we talk about things that can distract the mind or things that can you know, trigger anxiety or if there isn't enough stimulation and if the mind is not engaged in the process, the erection process doesn't, doesn't really get started as per its normal natural path. And sometimes when, I mean, you, you mentioned that 27-year-old guy and we as urologists maybe say, hey, maybe, maybe it's mental. When you use that word, they're assuming that you're telling that he's crazy or extreme things like that and say, hey, it might be just stress or, or something else. And sometimes they say, hey, I don't feel stress. So how do you divide that patient into different categories or, or if there are different categories? There are, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. So what I divide this between is that there's something called mental illness and there's something called mental health. And every human being has a mental health profile. A lot of times what we're talking about, even with psychogenic ED, has a lot more to do with mental health than it does with mental illness. So, you know, people of all walks of life are going to experience elements of depression, elements of anxiety, performance anxiety, and none of that necessarily warrants a bona fide mental health diagnosis or a mental illness diagnosis, but it's part of the mental health profile that we all walk around with. I know that for myself, I have some days where it's just a tougher day or I'm feeling anxious. That's part of my mental health profile. It doesn't necessarily mean I have a diagnosis. So I think explaining to, to patients and to clients the difference between mental illness and mental health is really, really helpful for them to understand that our mental health has to be in a pretty decent place you know, for us to be getting reliable erections. Yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, I have patients, I'm sure you see them as well, that they say, hey, during the week I'm working, uh, having good erections, then I go on vacation, I have started having spontaneous erections, good sex with my wife or my partner, whatever. So how do you explain to the patient, hey, you, you need time to recharge? It really depends on the patient. So for some patients, they really want a solution for like being able to have better erections during the week, or they want to be able to do this when they're not on vacation. For other patients, they just feel relief understanding what is going on, understanding that the stress is actually having an impact. And for some of them, they're actually okay, and their relationships are okay to have sex on the weekends or when there's an opportunity. But it's just a matter of helping them just come to an understanding or come to terms with the reality that if you have a very stressful work life or whatnot, that can have an impact on erection. So it really kind of depends also on what each client's goals or what each patient's goals are. So you mentioned that patient that wants uh, immediate relief. Do you offer some immediate relief or you go to the urologist and get some pills? What do you tell that patient? So if a, a patient is insistent on immediate relief, I let them know that there are medical interventions that probably can provide more immediate relief. And I do think that sometimes even the mental stress of not having that immediate relief sometimes warrants a medical intervention just to help this person be able to be in a much more calm and healthy state of mind. I do not offer immediate relief because the mind is very tricky. 
very complex in many ways. And I think there's enough snake oil out there in the erectile dysfunction space and generally in the sexual function space that I don't think it's doing patients a service to offer them some kind of immediate, we'll you know, have you fixed within the hour. That being said, younger patients do tend to see results pretty quickly, even from the psychogenic process. I think that has to do with just their physically more fit bodies are just better positioned to be able to make those kind of changes. But no, we don't offer anything immediate. And that patient that says, okay, I'm going to work with you. Let's start a process. What are the recommendations for that patient? Let's say, I mean, most patients that I see that might be psychogenic is usually overwork, working two jobs or working shifts at night during the day they sleep. So how do you tell them, hey, you need to change the way you function on a daily basis? That That's a great question. So I think with the patient base that I see, that tends to be, let's say, a more rare presentation, that it is a like a single factor event that's driving it. It tends to be more complex, where there also is there's work stress, but it's also spilling over into the relationship. And like it tends to actually be a, a bit of a more complex picture. So sometimes it's as easy as saying, well, you need to cut back on work. The response to that is that's just not possible. Okay. So now we're, now we're like kind of onto like those next steps where we have to work within the confines of this person's reality. A lot of times there's enough factors that I think can be addressed, both in terms of you know, a person's relationship, their own internal psychology, that they can both maintain a challenging lifestyle and still be able to carve out space to decompress and have enough mental bandwidth to be able to have the kind of sexual function that they want. Uh, I want to talk about specific conditions, for example, performance anxiety. What do you tell the patient that, that say, hey, everything is good, I'm having good erections, but then when I'm about to penetrate, the, the penis becomes flaccid. What do you tell the patient? So performance anxiety is a very complex experience, and it's hard to simplify it down into some advice. So that's where it kind of goes back to when performance anxiety is present, really needs to be assessed because performance anxiety can present in different ways for different people. For some people, performance anxiety is stemming from feared, perceived, or real criticism from a partner, and they really want to avoid that. For other people, performance anxiety is stemming from how they're assessing themselves, and they're totally not willing to hear anything that their partner is saying. If their partner is perfectly okay with it, the partner's not feeling like there's any negative impact, they're really very much assessing their own performance. So it's really, really key to understand that performance anxiety is not a one-size-fits-all experience, and it really needs to be looked at as the unique thoughts and feelings that come with different manifestations of performance anxiety that will be contextually relevant to each patient. So that that's a good point that you're making, and that will lead to my other question in terms of premature ejaculation. So, for example... Like you mentioned, the expectations. So some patients come to the office and they say like half an hour, they, for them is, is premature ejaculation. So stand up and get out of the office. I mean, so when that patient goes to your office, in terms of going back to the expectations, do, do you know more or less how many sessions it's going to take for somebody to get better or it's just you go session by session? I've probably answered this question three times today on various phone calls from <laughs> 
from prospective patients. So the way I approach this is I tell patients that it, it's very difficult to know. Generally speaking, again, the younger a patient is, certainly when it comes to erectile dysfunction, as an example, the younger the patient is, the quicker the expectation is that we will see movement. Now, again, that's a blanket statement, and I realize that cannot apply to everybody. But as you know, people age, the physical body becomes, I think, a lot more relevant, and the mind, I think, has like become a lot more concrete. So the work tends to be a lot longer. What I aim for, and I tell people it's just an aim, what I aim for is that we should see some directional indicators within about four to six sessions. I know it sounds like a lot relative to appointments or visits with a urologist and the therapy world that certainly is not a very high number. And again, what we're looking for is to have a sense of what is going on and to be able to see some indicator that we're in the right direction. And most of the patients that you see, are you being seeing them alone or, or you see them in combination with a urologist? So almost, I mean, exclusively in combination with at least a medical professional, preferably a urologist, but each person is in a, a bit of a different circumstance. And do you sometimes see patients that you need, you tell them, hey, do you, you need to see a urologist because this is not just psychogenic. All the time. So what I remind my listeners on my podcast and all my patients is that erectile dysfunction and, and sexual dysfunction in general is a medical condition. Okay? It's impacted by psychology, but it is a medical condition. And even when I am fairly confident that it is psychogenic, I'm very much aware that there can be some more rare conditions that need to be assessed and need to be under medical care. So I look at erectile dysfunction as a medical condition that can be caused by and heavily impacted by psychogenic factors. So everybody sees a medical professional, preferably before they come to see me, but secondarily, if they haven't, they're given a referral to do that in conjunction with the therapy. The other interesting thing, I think, towards this question is that a lot of times I will be working with somebody who's been medically cleared. But something will emerge in the conversations that they didn't necessarily disclose to a urologist because there wasn't enough time or they didn't think it was relevant that may indicate something maybe along the lines, say, of a venous leak, but they weren't really clear with the doctor the first go round. So I may send them back to the urologist and coordinate based on what comes out in the sessions. And I wanted to ask you about a premature ejaculation. I mean, do you see patients, a lot of patients like this? A, a fair amount, yes. Again, I guess also frustration can continue to the patient just overthinks it and, and it will, will continue to, to happen. Can you walk us through one of your sessions with this patient, with that patient like that? So, you know, premature ejaculation, there's different ways to categorize it. But again, a lot of this really depends on what the circumstances are. So the big differentiators that we're looking for are if it's lifelong or if it's an acquired PE. We also want to know if it is situational or if it's across the board. So when it's lifelong and it's across the board, I'm more hesitant these days to approach that as a psychosexual therapy to try to treat the underlying condition. That's where therapy much more is supportive. It's helping to find alternative ways to engage in sexual activity that can be satisfying. But I think it's a lot more difficult to treat lifelong non-situational PE. When somebody comes in and it's much more situational, let's say it's only happening with a partner. So again, the two the two general areas that we're looking at are overexcitation with premature ejaculation 
as well as an anxiety, like a performance anxiety. So while these seem to work in opposite directions, where anxiety does not sound like it's very exciting and overexcitation sounds like it's very hard to contain oneself, there is you know, certainly an overlap, both from a, from a neurological and a psychological perspective between the excitation and the anxiety areas of the, of the brain and those thought patterns. And we see a similar type of thing going on. So that would be one of the areas that we're looking to understand for the patient. Now, generally speaking, PE, like other forms of sexual dysfunction, is addressed with both, again, I'm a CBT therapist, so I look at it both from a cognitive but also from a behavioral standpoint. So the way I like to work is as we are getting into the cognitive work, we also want to assign you know, certain behavioral interventions so we can assess how progress is going, also helping men to learn ejaculatory control. So let's talk about the overexcitation. What does a patient can do about that? That's a great question. So overexcitation can have both a physical and also also a psychological manifestation. On the physical side, there is very little that we can do on the, on the psychological end. As I'm sure you're aware and anybody listening to this podcast are aware, there are delay sprays. There's also some off-label use of medications that could help to decrease sensitivity or decrease the ejaculatory side of things from a psychological standpoint. So there are a number of things that can be done. What I have found is what seems to be most effective is to be aware of what are the factors that lead to excitation and you know, working with oneself or one's partner to try to, again, I don't like the idea of limiting pleasure or trying to cap sexual pleasure for the sake of extending performance. But I think kind of working with a partner to be maybe a little bit more strategic about that when they bring in those more stimulating elements to the sexual experience, there are ways to, I guess, kind of gain more control over that psychological stimulation. That's one of the approaches. The other approach is to help kind of desensitize a person to those stimulating factors, both from a cognitive and also from an exposure standpoint. So is that like thinking of something else? So that's more of a distraction okay. type of thing. I know that some people use those. I'm not, you know, as a therapist, I'm just not a big fan of distraction. I think being present in a sexual experience is something that I value both as a therapist and as a person. So I want to try to work within those confines so that a person is really there with, a, with themselves and with their partner. And you mentioned distraction. So what's the difference between distraction and detraction? So in the erection space, what it probably means is like detraction from stimulation. Oh, okay. So okay. if you want like a, a difference, there may be, you know, distraction may be like, I'm not paying attention to the experience or I'm thinking about other things. And detraction may be that I find certain things stimulating. And when other things are brought into the experience or are not brought into the experience, it detracts or it erodes the kind of stimulation that I would need to maintain my erection. So we see, I mean, I see that sometimes it can be a change of position. The male partner, that is the one that I see in the office, sometimes feels different and maybe be, be the change of position, they can have a decrease in the erection or there some flaccidity. You mentioned also the, the, the ejaculatory control. How do you tell the patients to, to control that? So if I could tell them to control it, that would make my job a lot easier. <laughs> okay, okay. So ejaculatory control, I think, again, goes back to both the cognitive and behavioral components. 
So generally speaking, when I'm working with somebody with premature ejaculation, we want to help that person learn ejaculatory control on their own. Part of that is recognizing like when they're uh, approaching or reaching ejaculatory inevitability and being able to really become familiar with that sensation, understanding what brings them towards ejaculatory inevitability, and being able to back off of that sensation. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is partnered sexual activity. Again, this kind of ties back into the performance component, not even performance anxiety, but the performance elements of sexual activity. So a lot of men are able to gain ejaculatory control when they're on their own because they can slow down the tempo. They can slow down the, the, the friction. They can control certain aspects. Even when their partners are okay with them doing that in a partnered setting, a lot of men don't feel comfortable to actually slow down or detract from the experience that they believe they should be having or delivering to a partner. So gaining ejaculatory control with a partner tends to be a little bit more challenging. Are there any exercise that the patient can do for to be able to get some control? There are a number of behavioral interventions. There's the stop-start method. There's the squeeze method. There's, there's various methods out there that do work to varying degrees. What I do try to encourage, though, is that people should go through a proper assessment to determine if these exercises are going to be applicable, if it really makes sense. There's a lot of people who will find this. It's, it's published information on the internet. And without a proper assessment, we'll go ahead and try to engage in these, in these exercises not understanding like the backdrop, not understanding their own psychology, and a lot of times it just ends up not working. What about the opposite, that patient that is having anorgasmia? Anorgasmia, or like not just delayed ejaculation, but not ejaculating at all. Well, yeah, or, or that they, they get tired at some point because they haven't ejaculated yet. Or the partner says, hey, you know, get off. Yes, so, so this I think is one of the harder or more challenging sexual dysfunction conditions to treat both from a psychological, but also from what I understand from a medical standpoint. I find it a little bit challenging because it's very difficult to assess if it's a physical stimulation or a psychological issue. There are certain factors that I think sometimes can be enlightening, where I've seen very interesting presentations of delayed ejaculation or an ejaculation have been around a unwanted pregnancy or a fear of an unwanted pregnancy. That has been one of the, it's like a, a tall tale sign of there being like a psychogenic or a real psychological factor. Generally speaking, we try to assess if a man can ejaculate, obviously on their own, uh, but there is a difference between masturbation and like a penetrative sex experience that, again, it's very difficult sometimes to assess if it is a physical stimulation issue or if it is psychological. There are like historical theories about men wanting to withhold from their partners and whatnot, I think those have limited applications, certainly based on how we are structured in our relationships in 2023. But it's important to be aware that there definitely are other ways to think about this from a psychological perspective. Exactly. Mark, another question that I have, patients that, for example, let's say a patient is a diabetes patient, for some reason that patient is not a candidate for IPPs or, or any other intervention that unfortunately he's going to have to leave without being able to have erections. Let's say that a patient that for some reason, is that I saw a patient like that today, multiple cardiac conditions that unfortunately, they poor candidate for sex. So definitely if, if I can give, even if I put on an IPP or an inflatable device on the patient, definitely that patient is not going to be able to have sex because of the cardiac conditions. But that patient was his partner. So he was asking, 
what are my options? I mean, but the guy clearly, while he was talking to me, he was gasping. I mean, so, so, I mean, just, so a guy that just by walking gets very fatigued, other multiple conditions, how, how do you approach this guy? It's a great question. So I like the case that you're describing because he himself sounds like he's very limited. Right? His options are going to be very limited. Where I think the role of a therapist, you know, certainly a sex therapist, is, is to help this couple adjust to a new reality because you know sex is a conduit for intimacy and for connection for a lot of these people and when that gets lost unfortunately when or, or this can really apply to any time a person experiences a sexual function challenge that intimate connection starts to dwindle because the couple does not know how to adjust and does not know how to continue to engage with one another in this case where this it sounds like this gentleman is winded Right? Like he really, like he's got to be careful about like even exerting himself in any significant way. So even like the incorporation of a uh, device or a toy to be able to, you know, provide stimulation without having to overly exert and learning how to incorporate that and building some sort of intimacy around that is where a therapist would be able to be helpful. Obviously, we cannot psychogenically treat the respiratory issues that are going on or the cardiac issues that are going on. But Medical issues does not mean that a person does not crave and want that intimate connection. And a lot of times there are ways to facilitate that. Because, yeah, we always talk about the patient that we help or we can help. But what about the patient that sometimes there's nothing that we can do or offer to that patient? So I'm glad that you mentioned that there are things that you as a therapist can talk about toys, other things, so that at least that emotional and mental health is still there at least somehow. I would just also add to that that there are many instances that I've heard of in my office where a sexual function challenge actually opens the door to deeper intimacy because a couple's forced to communicate about things that they never really spoke about. It was just almost automated. They kind of had their routine and they went through that. And it forces them to really talk about their intimate life. And you know, certainly for men with female partners, a lot of times when an erection is inhibited, it actually brings more into focus some of the other areas of a sexual life and sexual encounters that can actually be much more to the benefit of the female partner. And a lot of times that only really comes to light in the face of erectile dysfunction. And Mark, when do you tell a client, hey, bring your partner into the therapy? When, when does that happen? That's a great question. I want to be careful with how I answer this because it's an evolving approach for me. Initially, because I was trained as a couples therapist, I would treat people experiencing sexual dysfunction in a couples context. I think what I found over the years of doing this work and what works best for me is to default to an individual assessment and an individual approach. Because a lot of times I think what's going on is very much paradigmatic. In other words, it's very much up inside of a man's head. It doesn't mean the relationship isn't having an impact, but a lot of times because there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of things that people don't want to say in front of their partner. Proper assessment and a proper approach are sometimes hard to develop when the partner is present. So I'd like to make sure that part is done individually. And like once we've made that assessment, if it really seems like there's something specific to the relationship, we would then look to bring a partner in. But I would say I'm doing that less and less as part of the treatment over the years that I've been doing that work. 
most men will bring their partner in at some point. I want to be clear about that. It's not like we're not including the partners in the treatment, but they're there to be much more part of the solution as opposed to viewing the dysfunction as stemming from something problematic in the relationship. In your practice, do you see usually more females, more women than men? Or So as, as my practice has expanded, I think we're getting closer to a 50-50. I, as a clinician, I see more individual men than women. It's just because my area of expertise is a lot more around male sexual dysfunction. I also see a lot of couples as well. So I interact with plenty of women in the therapy setting. But on the dysfunction side, I primarily see men. In the dysfunction side, mainly men. Yes. In my practice, we treat both. And there's a number of clinicians that are specifically focused on female sexuality and female sexual function. And just out of curiosity, I mean, uh, at least in your practice, what are the expectations the same between men and women? Or what are the expectations? Or do you see more false expectations from men compared to women? That is a fascinating question. I see it more in men, but it's probably because I'm seeing more men. I think men have higher expectations of themselves. I think it'd be fair to say, I think women oftentimes feel like they are not living up to the bar a lot more. I know that's a subtle difference. But I think I see a lot more of that with women. In men, most of they always say, maybe at least the 60, 70-year-old guys, that when they were younger, they had a 13-inch, everybody had that 12-inch, 13-inch penis. Yes. And now it's, it's less than half. I said, okay, <laughs> sure, sure you did. So so I guess that part is, I mean, just, I, I don't treat women uh, in the office for sexual dysfunction. So I just wanted to 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 see what 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 you what you had to to say about that. Mark, anything else you want to add? So I mean, the one thing I would add is for any you know, urologists who are out there, I understand and I really respect how limited the time is in the office. Like in many practices, I know that sometimes it's just ten or fifteen minutes. But I think being able to just have that conversation, certainly when it seems like there is a real relationship issue or a psychological issue going on. I think to be able just to have that even a minute conversation to normalize this, to let the patient know that it's not a mental illness, it's not something where it's all up in your head, it's not because your psychology is off or there's something fundamentally wrong. We all have mental health and like sometimes our mental health is not as balanced as we want it to be or we are pretty mentally healthy and we get performance anxiety and this is like normal part of being human. I think being able to have that conversation I think will help these patients get from the urologist's office over to be able to talk to somebody. So I just want to make sure that we emphasize that point. That is a great message. And I will definitely use that you mentioned the difference between mental illness and mental health. I'm going to steal that one. Mark, I want to talk about the Erectile Dysfunction Radio podcast. When did you start doing that? So we launched the podcast in September of 2020. So during COVID? During COVID, yeah. Good. I was going to say there was nothing else to do, but there was plenty to do. Uh, but we, yeah, it launched in September of 2020. We were initially doing it weekly. Over the years of doing, it became a lot. I'm, I host the podcast and things have, have grown in my practice and you know my schedule has gotten busier. So we have shifted the podcast to a once every other week episode. And you know, for anybody who's interested in listening, we try to touch on as many areas pertaining to sexual function challenges, both from the experiential, the psychological, relational, medical, and we've been having a couple PTs on recently to bring their perspective as well. And Mark, you mentioned that you do telehealth. It doesn't matter what, what state you're in. You see anybody? 
So that's a, also a very <laughs> tricky evolving question. So at the time of this recording, there are a number of clinicians in the practice who can see people for proper therapy services in other states. We can see people around outside of the United States is actually a lot easier than it is to see people across state lines. There are a number of processes in place that will allow therapists to work in multiple states, and we will certainly be a part of that as that comes online towards the end of 2023, the beginning of 2024. In the interim, we do offer coaching across state lines where we, the distinction we draw with that is what we can't do is we can't treat any diagnosed mental health condition across state lines, but we can you know, provide the same educational pieces that we bring, the same assessment skills. And if we find that somebody has a bona fide mental health diagnosis, we will help them with a referral in their state. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, where are you at? Where's the office? Practice is located in Maryland. So yeah, so for the audience that have that is practicing in the Maryland area, you have Mark Goldberg there. Yes. Okay, so Mark, again, thanks for being back table. I really enjoyed this this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.